Okay, way good to be here with you. You can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 15. We're picking up in verse 33 today. And if you've been here with us for a while, then you know we have been making our way on this slow roll through the gospel according to Mark. And we've been doing this for well over a year now as we look forward uh, toward Easter Sunday. And believe it or not, we will come to a conclusion in the gospel according to Mark on Easter Sunday. And what a, a journey it's been. Um, I mean, right in the midst of it, a year ago, we received notice that the space that we regularly gathered in at Central Campus, right on the Western Gateway of downtown, um, would be shutting their doors to anybody outside of the Des Moines School District. And that upended and shifted the dynamic and has landed us here today. And so it's bittersweet in some sense. This is not the ideal. I am so grateful for the ability for us to do this and we will keep this going for as long as we need to until we're able to come back together. And, and maybe it's a, a permanent fixture in the life of our church, but um, the ideal, what, what we desire is to be together. And, and to do so in such a way that we are able to pursue the presence of God and to be formed collectively into his image and join in renewal with him. You see, we, we do these things. That is, we gather, we pray, we uh, exalt God's name and worship through song. We do these things not as like an act of the will to show Jesus how much fervor we have for him or how much obedience we have for him. Rather, these, these exercises, these disciplines of gathering, if you will, these are to create space for God to work on our hearts. And that is why we have been in the gospel according to Mark, to, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to allow him to work on our hearts. And what a, what a timely moment in human history for the God of the universe to work on our hearts so we could join him in renewal. And this week, we, we come to a place with Jesus that's quite uncomfortable. And you see, anytime you sit with Jesus, it's not a place of ease. It's not necessarily, it, it is a place of comfort in some sense that it is, he is the, the eternal God coming near to us and making himself known and loving us. And th these things do have aspects of comfort. And yet Jesus is also um, discomforting. He's confronting. It's not like a time with Jesus, especially in the gospel according to Mark, is like sitting with a group of friends or another person over a nice glass of whatever. Especially in Mark, Jesus is confronting us. And Mark positions Jesus in these moments where he is challenging us and probing us. And there's this specific moment in Mark 2 that comes to mind where Jesus is surrounding a table with tax collectors and sinners. That is, he's sitting down at a table, a place in Jesus's day and time that was a place of restoration and identification and a place of forgiveness and family. Like it's the place where you would say, these are my people. And Jesus is there with tax collectors and sinners. That term sinners, it's a ancient idiom for sex workers of the day. And tax collectors, it'd be more appropriate to call them tax farmers. You see, tax collectors, 
collectors would be these Jewish citizens who would have joined together with the Roman imperial power to enforce their taxes. And historians tell us that the Roman tax would be 70, 75%, 80% at its worst. And these tax farmers would come along and they would say, actually, the tax is uh, it's 90% today. So imagine this, you're farming your ancestral land and this person who is a fellow Israelite, a fellow Jew is telling you, no, it's not 80, it's 90% and you can do nothing about it because they have a Roman garrison to back them up. Jesus is there with the culturally neglected, the sinners and the culturally despised, the tax workers. See, Jesus brings us, and being with Jesus brings us to this discomfort of reality. And when Jesus is seen in those types of places, he's profaned. All the religious leaders of his day push back against Jesus. They see him in those spaces, and he is profaned and rejected. And throughout Mark's narrative, this is the move of Jesus to challenge and probe and and invite us even at the same time to consider what life would be like with this Jesus and to do so with more than our mind. That is uh, more than just a theological way of thinking about Jesus or, or Jesus as an answer to our problem. Have you seen that bumper sticker? Jesus is the answer. And the question that I ask when I see it is, is to what? Like what questions are you asking? Do we think that we can just plug Jesus into the problems of our life and then everything will be fixed? And I think that's what that bumper sticker assumes, but it's not what Mark assumes. Instead, Mark's invitation involves our whole person. And that's why he will constantly use these verbs of perception to see and to hear and to touch. And that is front and center in our story today. Because Mark wants us to experience life with Jesus, not just intellectually or theologically, but holistically. He wants us to experience his life, yes, but also his death and his burial and his resurrection. And so on the docket for today is the death of Jesus. If you will, Mark 15, 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And we're just going to keep reading through to verse 39. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a spudge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. No, no, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Then this in 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. See, for Mark, the death of Jesus is all about judgment. And for our modern Western ears, that can be a challenging statement. We actually see this starting in verse 33. Go back and look there with me. We see darkness came over the whole land. 
in this picture, it's densely packed, but it is a densely packed image of judgment. Specifically, Mark is calling to mind this imagery of the Exodus account, specifically God's divine acts of justice, which we would call the plagues. And it's literally the same exact expression used here in Mark that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so when you go and you see Mark is not pulling any punches here. If, if people would have been reading their Bible or heard, hearing their, the Bible read, this exact same expression would come and fill their imaginations and mind because this is an image of God's judgment on the injustice of sin in the world. We see this image come up also in Amos 8, where we talk about, uh, where Amos is talking about the rejection of God by God's people. And the picture of darkness covering the land is the predominant image that's used there. And if you're a bit fuzzy on uh, the Exodus account. Here it is in just a few words. The Exodus is, is really this. It's God delivering his people from slavery and oppression to freedom and promise. From slavery and oppression to freedom and promise. And the most densely packed word in that statement is that preposition to. Two contains both the, the physical, emotional, and spiritual process that is from oppression to promise and the means by which God did his delivering, namely God's justice on the enslaving powers in Egypt or what we have come to call the plagues. This is the movement from slavery to freedom. And all of that is packed up inside of those words, darkness came over the land. In other words, we could read verse 33 as following, judgment came over the land. And Mark's doing something quite interesting here in verse 33 by introducing judgment is he's intending to wrap our minds and our hearts and our imaginations around a fuller picture of judgment, especially on the cross. You see, in verses 33 to 38, Mark is forming a inclusio. And an inclusio is a literary device. It's this closed loop of interconnected thoughts that helps us to see a broad picture of a certain topic. And in this case, it is judgment. And it starts and ends like this. So this is how the movement of verses 33 to 38 go. It starts with judgment, and then we get a cry. You have distorted hearing, then you have distorted seeing. Another cry and back in judgment in verse 38. And so we're gonna allow that movement, judgment, cry, distortion, distortion, cry, judgment to be our guide through our passage. And Verse 33 has come, we've seen judgment, darkness, and then in verse 34, we hear Jesus again. And listen, listen to his words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's so much richness to be had here. In this moment, Jesus literally becomes the God forsaken one. But notice that for Jesus, when he is calling out, he's saying, my God, my God, He's not discounting God or pushing him aside or rejecting him or he's identifying with him. He's, he's saying, this is my God and, not but, and he is feeling forsaken. 
And Jesus's words here, much like the, the Psalms, give us permission to express the deepest grief of our soul. And when I'm talking about our soul, I'm not talking about that disembodied part that kind of flitters off when we die. See, in the Hebrew imagination that is in the mind of the Bible, um, by the way, Jesus, Jewish rabbi, so this is his mental map of the world, you are a soul. You don't simply possess a soul. That comes later from Platonic thought, and that idea is that your body is bad, and your spirit or your soul is good. And so your body is just there uh, to be like a pleasure machine. And then finally you can get rid of your body and go up into some disembodied state. No, 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 that is not how the Bible sees us. The Bible sees us, Jesus sees me and you as integrated humans who bear God's image. And so Jesus's words here give for us a way to express the deepest griefs of our whole person. And this is the moment that we get distracted. It's, it's almost as though the permission for pain is too much. And I, I make this claim as I've like come back and studied through this passage time and time again. And I see that when commentators come here and when teachers teach here, the implications are the things that come out. It's the moments where, is Jesus borrowing completely from Psalm 92, quoting from uh, King David and his words, and why isn't the whole of the Psalm there? And is, is Jesus now fulfilling David's prophetic witness? And is this a moment where the scriptures is evidence to be supernatural or, um, goodness, is, what is this? And the conversation quickly devolves into that space, and I'd say sanitizes the moment in front of us. It, it strips Jesus of his cry. And I'm not trying to be like anti-intellectual here, not in the least bit. I, I love the life of the mind. I love thinking deeply about these things, but anybody who would go into the mystery of Jesus who gave himself over into death, nobody took his life, he freely gave it. Anybody who would look into that mystery ought not dismiss these words, these cries that Jesus lets out. So can we stop for a moment and hear Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus turns to his God and he feels more absent than present. Have you not felt that? This is reality. And I certainly don't think I'm alone in this. Because this is what the great Christian mystics like St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila called the dark night of the soul or the dark night of the senses. And we don't have time to fully unpack that concept yet, Lord willing. In the coming months and years, we'll be able to venture deeper into this phenomenon, and especially later this spring and summer as we start to engage in this foundational series on being a community following Jesus in an emotionally healthy church. We can dive deeper there, but for now, 
I don't want us to turn away from this. I want us to hear Jesus' words. And so um, I want us to consider these emotional and experiential markers that might be telling the story of our own life, that we might be in this thing right now. This season, this past year might be our dark night. And, and the work of uh, Pastor John Mark Comer on the Dark Knight has been especially helpful with this. He's constructed most of this list. And so this is these emotional and experiential markers kind of sketch this picture. These are feelings you might experience in, in such a moment as this, when, when God feels more absent than present. And it feels like regression, like you're going backwards emotionally and spiritually. You're wondering, have I done something wrong? Am I more sinful than ever? And things that once were life-giving, spiritual or otherwise, are now dull and uninteresting. And, and this even like proceeds beyond your temperament because maybe you're like a nine on the Enneagram and it takes a lot to get you going and then you just kind of peter right off. And so most of life is like feels a little dull or maybe you're, you're a bit um, more melancholic in your temperament and so this goes beyond that. It's, it's like amplified and you're wondering, like even the spiritual disciplines, the things that hold space in our life for God to work on us through the power of the Spirit, they feel boring and dry and uninteresting and there's this weariness and lack of motivation. It's, it's like there's no fruit, like we're a, a pruned a pruned rosebush, and you see leaves, but you don't see an expression of the inner life that's there. And we wonder, has God indeed abandoned us? Has he abandoned me? Is he even real? Is this forever? And paradoxically, this deep desire for God runs therein. And if, if that's a place that you're in, this is like the, the thing that we can do as a church. We can say, you are not alone. And then we can say, please, I know it takes a great step of, of like faith and courage to make yourself vulnerable through communication. But if this is you and you need to journey with someone, we have communities who gather regularly throughout the weeks to live life even in the midst of this, because this is the reality that Jesus brings us to. And I don't want to discount those feelings. So I want to make space for those. But I, I also don't want us to fully count on those feelings because something else might actually be happening in that space. And there might actually be progression that's taking place. God is, is freeing you or me from like attachments and anxieties. God is graciously allowing you to experience your own emptiness apart from him. For so long, you've believed, yes, I have this thing with Jesus down. I follow him, etc., etc. And yet you've always assumed that he's just there with you. And then this moment comes where he feels like he's not. And this is a gift to allow you to feel his absence so you would desire his presence even the more. Perhaps this is God mellowing you, gently inviting you, maybe even nudging you to slow down and find joy in the simple pleasures to trust and sit quietly to stop striving in Jesus's name and receive the gift of his rest. Perhaps God in this is, is freeing you from this misplaced confidence in ideas about God or feelings of God and instead gracing you with trust in himself. Maybe this is a preparer like in preparing you for what's next 
in life, to, to lead you in a place of greater joy and love and peace. Maybe this is the place where your desire for God would increase and your desire for sin would decrease. This is the discomfort of the darkness. Being with Jesus leads us here. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, this feels dim, the cross, but I know God is with me. He doesn't say this is a hard moment, but I know others have had it worse. No, like the grief of, of the darkness falls on Jesus with its full force. And he cries out. And that means that when the darkness falls on us, we too can cry out. We don't have to be crippled by guilt. We can allow those moments where we feel the darkness to say, my Lord, my Jesus identifies with me in that. And it can, that guilt can be transformed in Jesus' name into a space of grief where we can move with Jesus in and through that. See, Jesus doesn't play this down or soften the blow. It's the full force and it rests on him and he expresses this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Jesus's words, we can give breath. We can release the full weight of the darkness. And the truth is, we're not designed to be able to handle this stuff. That's not how we were made to live in isolation and alienation and pain and rejection and confusion. The world is not how the world is supposed to be. This is not God's will. So we are not in the condition we are designed for. Like, this is all a bit messed up. And it can feel like God is indeed a long way off, that he is absent and that we're just stuck right here in the middle of this miserable, godless existence. And it hurts. It hurts like hell because it is a kind of hell. It's a place that is, is, is absent of God's felt presence. And it's a form of existence that is completely and absolutely godless. That is the world we inhabit. And I'm not trying to be like morose or paint a picture of like, oh, it's all just, it's utter destruction. No, this is the reality of the chaos we live in. And we can name it as such. And Jesus named it as such. See, what Jesus' words teach us is that God actually knows what it is to be forsaken. He knows that this is not how it's supposed to be. He knows that this is not his will. See, ever since Genesis 3, his will has not been done here. Until we meet Jesus, who is obedient even unto death. And his will will not be completely done until the renewal of all things, the consummation of heaven and earth, God's space and human space being reunited once again. Therefore, Jesus' cry, it tells us the truth about our world and gives us confidence to live in this space, even amidst the discomfort 
So we can take comfort amidst the discomfort, knowing that Jesus knows the God-forsaken path of the cross. This is the upside-down kingdom. Meanwhile, those who are surrounding the cross, they hear Jesus' cry, and they can neither understand or perceive And that brings us to the distorted hearing and the distorted seeing in verses 35 and 36. See, they hear Jesus cry out and they say, wait, 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 okay, he's calling out for Elijah. And then somebody goes up to give him some wine vinegar. We don't know if Jesus drinks it. And then uh, they say, no, 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 leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes. And, And notice two things here. First, they hear Jesus, but they don't really hear Jesus. And second, they see but they're looking for the wrong thing. And this is a call back to this theme that Mark is continuing to tease out here from all the way back in chapter four that, that was about the parable of the soils. Right in the midst of that, in, in Mark chapter four, when Jesus is explaining the parable of the soils to his disciples, he draws on this quote from Isaiah, who Jesus loves to quote from the prophet Isaiah. And the quote goes like this, they may be ever seeing but not perceiving, and ever hearing but not understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Now that is a a confusing and frustrating passage in Isaiah that Jesus calls to mind. And yet, that's not where we're at. But where we are is this moment where they hear and they see, but they neither understand or perceive. Though they are physically near to Jesus, and to to hear Jesus say, Eloi, Eloi, and to think when he's saying, Father, my God, my God, in Aramaic, that he's calling out to Elijah in Hebrew, gives us an understanding that these are Hebrew-speaking people. They have their ears attuned to what might be Hebrew. Are these religious leaders? Are they other onlookers? We don't know. But what we do know is that when they are close at hand, they neither see and perceive or hear and understand. They think that Jesus is calling on Elijah. And in a Jewish rabbinic tradition, there is this idea that Elijah, when called upon, would come and help the righteous. And he would even come at the consummation of, of God's kingdom. And if this is indeed the case, which it seems likely, Jesus has already addressed this. And Morna Hooker in her commentary on Mark, she talks about this moment as the, quote, intentional irony of Mark, end quote. And this is a wink and a nod back to chapter nine when Jesus essentially says that Elijah has come, he's come in John the Baptist. He's come to prepare the way. And John the Baptist, if you remember, came with his message of renewal to, to repent and believe that the kingdom of God was at hand and all of this, and he was rejected and eventually beheaded. See, they can neither understand though they hear nor perceive though they see. And it's like they are a picture of the rejection that has been taking place this whole time. And Mark closes the loop of this with another cry of Jesus in verse 37 and then the final picture of judgment in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And at a popular level, uh, 
there have been some fascinating interpretations of verse 37 and 38 coming together. My favorite was, which I don't affirm, but my favorite was that when Jesus breathed his last, that it was this gust of wind. And um, what's really beautiful is in both the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek New Testament, which is the language those texts were originally written in, uh, the language for spirit or breath in the New Testament in Greek is pneuma. And in Hebrew, it's ruach. And both of those, like if you put your hand up to your mouth and you say your name, you can feel your breath on your hand. That's this idea, the same, it's the same exact word when you translate it, same word for wind. And so the idea is that Jesus breathed his last and this like mighty force came from Golgotha, the place of the skull down to the temple and like ripped the curtain. That's like pretty Hollywood. I, I don't think that that's what's going down, but I just wanted to share it because I thought it was pretty epic. No, what comes to us most often and what I had been like taught and kind of indoctrinated into is that Jesus' death right here in verse 38 has taken a shift. And it's taken a shift in a triumphal moment where access is opened wide to any and all who would come to God. That that veil or that curtain represented a barrier and that that barrier to God, because at the temple was now wide open. The temple was the place where in the Hebrew imagination, heaven, God's space, and earth overlapped. And that that barrier was only accessible to a few people if they were holy enough and righteous enough and held the right position. And now with the curtain torn, any and all who would come would be received. And as, as beautiful as that is, It, it takes this final display of judgment, the, the tearing of the curtain, and it places it in a narrative outside of the internal workings of Mark. In other words, it's missing the point. The point of the curtain tearing is to build on Jesus's condemnation of the temple because in Mark, the temple is corrupt. It's a den of robbers. It's been hijacked as an institution of oppression, oppression of the poor and the marginalized, and it's done at the hand of the religious elite. To think that a torn curtain is about access is to assume that God was in the temple in the first place. No, God's presence is vacant from the temple. God is not in the temple. God is on a cross. That is the point. Judgment has come on the temple and being with Jesus leads us into the discomfort of this reality that the God forsaken God is hanging there. And it comes with clarity. Because in verse 39, after this judgment loop has been closed, we see the implications. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, notice he sees. He said, surely this man was the son of God. See, no longer is God far off in the temple there he is, a corpse on a cross, and this Gentile agent of the empire sees him. Do you notice that? That verb of perception, he is the one who rightly sees. This Gentile empire agent, this centurion, and the woman back in Mark 14 who anointed Jesus with oil for his burial before him, they're the only people who see Jesus for who he truly is. A woman 
and a Gentile outsider. Come on. This is who the kingdom is for. Surely this man was the son of God. In other words, everything that Jesus has claimed to be is true. Everything that he was getting, trying to get people to, to hush up about is true. He indeed is the one through whom God's agent, through God's restoration, God's restoration is moving through Jesus. And the disciples didn't see it. No, uh, under the threat of arrest, they fled. The religious leaders didn't see it. They rejected Jesus. They wanted to put him to death when they, and like they conspired together to put him to death when he healed somebody on the Sabbath. So they perceive Jesus as a threat. They hand him over to be crucified. But this centurion, and get this, his eyes have been trained to see death as defeat and the cross as the ultimate place of shame. And yet when he sees Jesus and how he died there, he sees something extraordinary. And we see it in his claim, truly this is. This man was the son of God. And he's not saying, well, at some point he was and now he's not. He's saying, no. Everything about Jesus is true. He is the Son of God. And now that statement is intense because that statement is a political statement. Because to say so, to say that Jesus is the Son of God is to say that he is king. And King Jesus is the appropriate thing to claim because Son of God, that's how another person goes. They go by that title and that person is Caesar. Caesar. And when the centurion made this climactic confession about Jesus, he confessed what he should only confess of the Roman emperor. Therefore, Caesar is no longer the son of God. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is. And the mockery is over and a new allegiance is proclaimed. And if this is true for him, it can and must be true for you and me. A new allegiance can be proclaimed. And where does it take place? Notice, the centurion doesn't make this claim after hearing about Jesus. And my guess is that he may not have ever heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe a little bit. No idea. It doesn't come when he, like, sees God move in power through Jesus, like so many who are standing around the cross have. No, his claim, his confession that Jesus is the Son of God comes after he sees how Jesus died. And may we, may we repent, may we turn back to Jesus for how we dismiss and sanitize his, his death as a place of, of theater or as a place of minimal significance in our life. Because it's the death of Jesus that opens up a brand new story to the true king of the cosmos. The place where a new allegiance can be offered up, where we truly can be transformed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. Because death is not a closing off to God in Jesus's name. It is a revealing of his love. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read this about Jesus. We see that Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used of his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is where we find Jesus. But death is not the end. See see what comes next. See, God in the death of Jesus exalts Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Messiah, Jesus the Christ is King, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the discomfort of a new reality where Jesus is king, but he's not enthroned like the other kings. Instead, for Jesus, he's not enthroned by by dismantling the other powers. He's not enthroned by killing his enemies. He's enthroned when he goes and is hung on a cross to die for his enemies. So then in his death, they may taste life and life to the full. See, being with Jesus, yes, it does lead us into the discomfort of this reality where King Jesus goes to die on a cross, but it leads us there so that we can see that through death, there is another way forward. And we call this new creation. So spoiler alert, and we'll unpack this more in a few weeks, but Jesus doesn't stay dead. And so this is just too good not to say, death is not the end. Your dark night is not the end. It is the passageway to new life. See, this is, this moment, I originally, when I putting this teaching together, I, I thought, okay, yeah, this will be a, a, a a taxonomy of the atonement theories, which is just a fancy way of saying, here's a list of all of the ways that people think Jesus's death matter. And I'll answer the question, why did Jesus die? And we'll kind of work through and I'll beat up on a couple of popular atonement theories and show how really the whole picture is about Jesus identifying with us so that we could be included in his life. And the the hinge point of that is the cross, namely the death of Jesus. And as I began to work just to see that this is about judgment about judgment falling on Israel and that the way of God being loosed through Jesus's death so that any and all it can indeed come to him, but he's not in the temple. He is alive and among us through the spirit so that his will and reign and rule can be activated through these little pockets of Jesus communities who do his will here on earth as it is in heaven. This is the beauty that is packed deeply in the darkness because the light has shone. And this light as it comes, man, it's shone in the darkness and the darkness will not, cannot overcome it. That light is Jesus. He has come so that we might have life and life to the full. And so, are we willing to look? Are we willing to see Jesus as he truly is? I pray, I pray that we will. Lord, have mercy.